Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want? Or the governor says, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The religious leaders have rejected their king. The crowd has gathered just outside the praetorium in that common area. Pilate has declared Jesus repeatedly not guilty, innocent. The religious leaders won't accept Pilate's verdict. Pilate will now appeal to the crowd. He is going to ask the crowd what they think about Jesus and what they want to do with Jesus. And will the people of God, will the people of God who have gathered together make the right choice? Will they choose a king? Will they choose a criminal, verses 16 through 17? God has a plan. Part of God's plan is that Jesus is going to serve as the substitute for people who have committed crimes before God. Satan has a plan. God wants to redeem humanity. Satan wants to cloud humanity's thinking with lies and deception and false accusation and to come to a different conclusion about their own circumstances. The religious leaders conspire together and they fabricate three charges against Jesus. They accuse Jesus of being a revolutionary or, or a seditionist, of inciting the people to not pay taxes, number two, for claiming to be a king, number three. And Pilate, Pilate has found him innocent of all these charges and continue to try to release him. In verse 22, when he says, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? The reader is invited to answer or re-ask that question. Yes, Pilate. Yes, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? Will you punish the guilty and release the innocent or are you going to punish the innocent and release the guilty? What will you do with Jesus? And what will I do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? There are people who say, hey, you know what? Whatever you decide, it doesn't really matter. But nothing could be further from the truth. There was a man named Rudolf Bultmann who popularized the search for the historical Jesus and basically came to the conclusion that it's impossible to know who the real Jesus is. And so you might as well not even look. 
The New Testament says exactly the opposite. The New Testament says, I am going to paint a picture of the real Jesus so that you will know him and love him and so that you'll embrace his offer to be saved. You will make a decision. Not just a decision to determine his guilt or innocence, but remember what we've already talked about. Your guilt or innocence before God. What, was, what is the true identity of Jesus? What is the mission of Jesus? What will you believe about Jesus? And which Jesus will you believe in? The Bible and the Bible writers invite you to form an opinion and make a judgment about Jesus. A judgment has been defined as, quote, an authoritative opinion or a formal decision. One of my favorite definitions is, quote, the process of forming an opinion or evaluation by discerning and comparing. Some of you will watch a game this afternoon. You've already made your choice about who you're going to root for. Some of you have no dog in the fight, so you don't really care who wins or who loses, but in direct proportion to your commitment to the winner or the loser, the consequences for some is going to be mean a lot more money and a renewed contract. For others, it's going to be disappointment. We all make all kinds of decisions throughout our life, but there's nothing more important than the decision that you make about Jesus. If you've decided that Jesus is the Christ, if you have decided that he is the Lord, you might be labeled narrow-minded or judgmental. You see, most of us, most of us, when we're accused of being judgmental, we're made to feel wrong. We're made to feel narrow-minded, maybe even evil. I can't even recall a single person that I've ever met who's ever said, you know what, I love being called judgmental. Nobody loves to be called judgmental. If you believe that Jesus can provide the only real hope, if you believe that Jesus provides forgiveness of sin, if you believe that Jesus is the one who reconciles you to God, if you believe that Jesus is the only person who can promise you heaven and deliver heaven, then chances are you're going to be accused of being judgmental at some point. You might think, I don't want to judge. I, I don't want to run the risk of being called judgmental. But you must. Jesus stands before you. Jesus claims to be the king. Jesus claims that he came from God. Jesus claims that he testifies to the truth. Jesus claims that he came so that you would know him and love him and believe him and accept his claims that he would be willing to forgive your sin and according to one Bible writer that he would present you faultless before the throne of God and that to believe in him to accept his claims means grace and mercy and to reject his claims means that you're going to be branded a rebel, an insurrectionist, a malcontent, a mutineer on this planet called Earth. Pilate is a reluctant judge, and you may be a reluctant judge. We profiled him in an earlier study. We discovered that he's already made several grievous errors. He's managed to upset, inflame, infuriate, enrage the local Jewish authorities. Pilate has caused Tiberius to question his competency and leadership in the Roman province to which he has been made the procurator for Pilate, the seat of judgment as he's sitting in this seat of judgment. It's become a hot seat. So don't be surprised this morning if you start to smell the sizzle of burning flesh. And it isn't just Pilate's circumstances that will catch fire. That faint odor of burning flesh might mean that you're on the hot seat. Because you have to make the most important decision that you've ever made. It isn't about who you're going to root for. You might think, I don't want to decide. Well, guess what? You're free not to decide 
the outcome of the game this afternoon. But the truth is, you must decide about Jesus. Pilate thought exactly the same thing. He thought, I don't have to make a decision, or whatever decision I make, it doesn't really matter. I can find him guilty, I can find him not guilty. I can let him go, I can crucify him. But make no mistake about it, indecision is decision. You will decide. Why didn't Pilate let Jesus go? Was it because of fear of the crowd? Was it fear of the emperor? Was it fear of losing his job? Was it a lack of moral courage? Why won't people make the decision about Jesus? There's lots and lots of reasons, and some of them in the past, for some of you, you've already come up with those decisions in your mind. Pilate has heard the accusations hurled against Jesus. He claims he's a king in verse 11 and in John 18, 37. He admits that he's a king. But remember what he's already told Pilate, but not like you think, Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would come and they would fight, it says in John chapter 18, verse 6. Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Jesus says, I've come to bear witness of the truth, not to impose the truth, not to cram it down your throat. I've come to testify to the reality of the circumstance that you find yourself in. Jesus comes into this world to give you an explanation of why the world is the way that it is. And why you are the way that you are. And why the circumstances that you face matter. Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. Jesus says, I've come into this world in John 18, 37, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so repeatedly I've told you that for people who say, I care about the truth, I want to know the truth, I want to love the truth, then you're going to care about what Jesus has to say. He claims he bears witness of the truth. And that must mean that there's such a thing as the truth. And so in verse 15, when he says, now at the feast, he's talking about the Passover feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. Remember what I've already told you. He was made the governor of this province by either Tiberius or Sejanus in 26 AD, which if this is happening between 30 and 33 AD, he has already initiated this circumstance somehow in order to generate goodwill among the crowd. He's going to release a cut. He's going to let someone guilty go free in order to placate the crowd. Pilate's supposed to be a fair and impartial judge. He's supposed to weigh the facts. He's supposed to evaluate the evidence. He's supposed to take all of the things into consideration in law school. You know what you're taught? You're taught if the facts are in your favor argue the facts. If the law is in your favor, argue the law. If neither the facts nor the law aren't in in your favor, just argue. Pilate is supposed to weigh and make a decision. D.A. Carson says, quote, in Roman law, an imperial magistrate could acquit a prisoner not yet condemned or pardon one already condemned, unquote. And no wonder we begin to understand what Pilate says when Jesus refuses to speak to him. And Pilate says, don't you understand who I am? Don't you understand that I have the ability to let you go free or to crucify you? And Jesus' response is, you would have no power at all. The power that you've been given comes from above. Therefore, the people who handed me over to you bear the greater guilt. The Bible says when he said that, he wanted to let him go even more. The Jews have a custom or ritual of releasing a prisoner during the feast at Passover. He knows that the mainstream leadership wants Jesus dead. But what about the common people? 
What will the man on the street say? Remember, a week earlier, Jesus is paraded into the city. People have cried at the top of their voice, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the one. And, and so maybe Pilate is thinking, clearly given an opportunity to prosecute a criminal and release a prophet, they're going to release the prophet. In verse 16, it says, and at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Who is this notorious prisoner? Even that word notorious means something. This is sort of like being placed on the top 10 criminal list in the ancient world. His name means son of the father. Some ancient manuscripts list his name as Yeshua, Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. Some of you may even have a Bible with an NIV that, that translates this Jesus Barabbas. He's called a robber in John 18, 40, but robbery isn't always a capital crime. I'm reasonably certain that he is also imprisoned, according to Luke 23, 19 and Mark 15, 7, because it says he's been charged with insurrection, which is sedition and murder. Jesus is falsely accused of sedition and insurrection. He's rightly accused of insurrection and sedition. I'm reasonably certain that three prisoners were fitted for crosses that day. The rough-hewn cross that was made and fitted for one Yeshua Barabbas was made in advance. But now the cross... For Yeshua Barabbas is going to become the cross of Yeshua ben Joseph. Jesus, Barabbas, two Jesus, one cross. Who's going to die? Pilate would have the rebel and killer of his own countrymen die on that cross. Barabbas, the son of a father, becomes a type and a picture of all fathers who are born into this world. And now we begin to understand and we see a picture of the role, once again, of the reason why Jesus comes to die. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, quote, We are all of Adam's race. We have been bound over for our sedition against God. We are robbers of his glory. We are murderers of our souls and the souls of others. We find ourselves bound in the darksome prison house of sin. We feel in our hearts that we merit the sentence announced to us and that we wait with trembling the time of judgment. This passage reminds us that we're going to die. Just like the scriptures say, it's appointed once for a person to die. And then the judgment. We don't want to die. And we deserve to die. We deserve our punishment. You know, it's interesting when I was preparing this message, I, I remembered, again, working with police departments and, and going to certain classes. I, I understand that condemned criminals and prisoners will often, they'll begin to practice breathing exercises. They'll, they'll hold their breath as long as they can so they can avoid inhaling the fatal fumes when they've been sentenced to the gas chamber. I have friends who literally interviewed Saddam Hussein before he was hung by the neck before he was dead. And they said before he was hung, he would be in his prison cell and he would touch his throat. He would rub his throat. He would continue to touch it. it, it it's as if a person in anticipation of how it is that they're going to die, will we'll begin to act out. And sometimes we begin to act out. We pretend. We pretend that we won't die. And so Pilate presents an option to the people. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called the Christ. Who do you want? Do you want a known killer? 
Do you want a person who is a taker of life or do you want a person who's a giver of life? Do you want a rebel or do you want a ruler? Now remember in verse 18, Pilate already knows the the true motive for, for, for people handing Jesus over to them. He has already spelled it out that it's envy. And what does that mean? He knows it's a hatchet job. He knows that Jesus has been framed. He knows that the religious leaders hate Jesus and that they're envious of his appeal to the people. And I want you to just pause and think about that for a moment. They are envious of Jesus. In what way? The very fact that they envied Jesus must have been that there was something appealing about Jesus. There was something winsome about Jesus. Whether it was his demeanor or the words that he spoke or the things that he did, there was something that people would look at Jesus and they would recognize that there's something different about Jesus and he's so different from anyone else and everyone else. The brothers of Joseph, you'll remember, they envied Joseph. He was his father's favorite. He had a a coat of many colors. They would toss him into a pit and they would sell him into slavery. And you'll remember Joseph said, when it came time to redeem his own brothers and sisters, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Even though people have had a wrong way of thinking and they've drawn wrong conclusions about Jesus. And even while he's speaking in verse 19, it says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat. The word that's used for judgment seat is a very specific word which means the place where adjudication takes place. This is the place where the verdict is rendered and the decision is made. It is Pilate's hot seat. He is on the seat and his wife sends him a note. And this particular passage in verse 19 isn't found in Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel or John's gospel. It's only found here. According to some, Pilate's wife was named Claudia, Procula. She was allegedly the granddaughter of Augustus. I couldn't find any convincing evidence, but I did know that Augustus had three wives. His last wife was a a, a lady named Livia who is going to adopt Tiberius as the emperor. Now, again, Livia is the biological mother of Tiberius, the third wife of Augustus. Augustus will adopt Tiberius after his own previous children are either murdered or assassinated. Again, some historians suggest that Claudia had converted to Judaism Some say that after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, she becomes a convert to Christianity, but there's no evidence. What happened, we don't know other than what this text is telling us. It says that she said, have nothing to do with this just man. He's innocent. How do you know he's innocent? I have suffered many things today. What day is that? It's the morning of his prosecution. What happened in the evening? Remember, it was the Last Supper. You'll remember he goes to Gethsemane where he, he cries out to God and he sweats great drops of blood. She says, I had a dream about him. In my dream, I was told very specifically that this particular person is innocent. You'll remember in the New Testament in Matthew's earlier gospel, Joseph is told in a dream to take Mary as his wife. The wise men are told in a dream to go in a different direction so that the child would be safe. In the first century, both Romans and Greeks saw dreams often as omens. How are we to think about this? I'm going to suggest to you that however we're to think about this, God will sometimes send things our way that are checks in our spirit. It's a way of saying you hear something on the radio or you see something on television or you hear a sermon being preached and all of a sudden your heart is addressed and and the Lord begins to speak to you and says, you need to be careful about the decision you're about to make. I want to warn you that that's not a good choice. And by the way, you'll remember that Adam paid attention to his wife, ate the apple, Her advice was bad. 
Claudia tells Pilate to listen. Don't take the bait. Now, ladies, if you've ever wanted a passage of scripture that says not all advice from women is bad, this is the one you're going to want to underline. And gentlemen, for those of you who think that your wife has nothing important to say to you, this is the one you're going to want to underline. Not all advice from women is bad. So what will he do? Now, I want you to, again, think about this. The evidence says, let him go. The interrogation says, let him go. The law says, let him go. His wife says, let him go. Verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas, and look at this harsh word, and destroy Jesus. Not just make life miserable for him or difficult, obliterate him, destroy him. People are sheep. They don't always arrive at a just conclusion based on evidence and facts. And the religious leaders stack the deck against Jesus, encourage the crowds to shout for Barabbas. Bruner writes, quote, the crime of leadership is selecting the wrong Jesus and then persuading the people to agree, unquote. Which Jesus do we choose? Which Jesus will we follow? Do we follow the Jesus as he's described in the New Testament? Do we choose the Jesus of the cults? Do we choose the spirit brother of Lucifer? Do we choose the ascended master? Do we choose the person who's perfectly human? Do we choose the Jesus of the popular culture who sees Jesus as, as, as a sort of a cable outlet where we have the Jesus on demand and we have the, we have the video Jesus and we have the Jesus who will give us whatever we, we, we want? It's interesting to me. I don't know who the source is, but I found this lengthy quote that I couldn't resist I don't know who the source is or else I would give it, but it goes like this, quote, of course the world chooses Barabbas. Barabbas is the guy who's going to destroy the system. Barabbas is going to burn them out. Barabbas is going to kill them. Why would they want Barabbas? It's very simple. If you let Barabbas go and he starts another disturbance or another riot, you can always call in the National Guard, the federal troops, the Marines to put this thing down. All you have to do is push a few tanks into his neighborhood and you can squash whatever he's up to. You can find out where he's keeping his guns. You can raid his apartment. You can always stop Barabbas but the real question is how do you stop Jesus how do you stop a man who has no guns no tanks no ammunition and he's still shaking the entire Roman Empire unquote how do you stop the Jesus of the New Testament? How do you stop this person who comes into your heart and your life and who washes you and cleanses you, who literally changes you, who reconciles you to the Father? How do you stop the Jesus of the New Testament who, who claims that he will show up and he'll change you forever? What is your conscience telling you right now? Who is your soul crying out for? Which Jesus do you want? Do you hear your voice mingled with the crowd shouting for Jesus? But which Jesus? The crowds are crying out for a different Jesus. They're crying out for a Jesus who won't require them to suffer or who won't require them to be persecuted or who won't require a cross. And so the call for Barabbas is really a call to ignore the demands of the cross. And no wonder the New Testament writers saw this clearly. They understood what Jesus would do. The cross that Jesus is going to die on was intended for Barabbas. 
And then all of a sudden the New Testament writers began to understand, no, that cross was not just simply intended for him, it was intended for me. No wonder Paul would say, not I, but Christ lives in me. And the, the, the life that I'm called to live, I'm called to live it for Jesus. No wonder Jesus would say, take up your cross and follow me. The wrath, the punishment, the consequences, they were all meant for someone else. You. And so the true believer longs for tyranny from the release of self. The, the Christian says, I want my sin and I want my fear and I want my guilt to go away. The true believer wants to die to self so that Jesus can live in them. And so Pilate still holds out hope though. Jesus called Christ doesn't deserve to die. What will I do with Jesus? And Pilate is putty. He's no commander. He lets the people decide for him. Is that what you're going to do? Are you going to let the people decide for you? Are you going to let your husband, your wife, your brothers, your sisters, the people you go to school with, are you going to let the popular culture cry out and tell you what you're going to believe and who you're going to believe and what you're going to trust? He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that they're committed to an agenda where the truth doesn't matter and where justice doesn't matter. You have to do something with Jesus. Okay, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good man, a great man, a moral man, maybe even the best man who has ever lived, who is unjustly accused, he's unjustly executed. And when people tell me that, I think of C.S. Lewis's famous quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Good people don't claim to be something that they're not. And so Jesus claims to come from heaven and come for you. We come to the key question that every person has to answer. What shall I do with Jesus? Does Pilate even know the enormity of the question? And he has a choice. He is, after all, the judge. Is he going to stand up for the truth? Is he going to listen to the cries of the crowd? In order to deliver Barabbas, Jesus is going to have to die. And so the picture all of a sudden becomes very, very clear. Jesus is going to take the place of the condemned man and not just any condemned man, but a very specific man. And then he's going to serve as the substitute for every single person who stands condemned before a just and a holy God and deserves to go to hell. And so for the person who's the notorious criminal. For the person who says, I've done horrible things. I've done terrible things. I've done unforgivable things. Jesus comes for you. He'll die for you. He'll serve as the substitute for you. And in verse 24 it says, when Pilate saw that he could not 
prevail at all, but rather that a tumult or a riot is about to break out. He took water. He washes his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. You see to it. Again, Bruner says, the commander who asks a mob for counsel forfeits the right to command. Well, what is everybody saying about Jesus? My deep concern isn't what everybody's saying about Jesus, it's what Jesus is saying about himself. The crowds aren't going to listen to the facts. They're not going to listen to reason. They're not going to listen to the law. They're not even going to listen to mercy. Look what it says in the earlier verse, in verse 23. But they cried all the, all the more saying, let him be crucified. I can't even begin to tell you what an awful word this is. These people would have been aware of what that word meant and what the consequences of that word would mean. Pilate attempts to distance himself from his own responsibility by washing. This is, by the way, a distinctly Jewish custom, and some critics have said Pilate would never have done that. But I am absolutely certain that the text is true and that he really did do that. Critics point out, well, you know, this is a Jewish custom and no Roman in his right mind would have done it. No. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 1 through 9. In that culture and society, if a dead body was found anywhere near a village or whatever the closest village was, if it was not known who the killer was, measurements were made to the nearest town or village. The elders of that town or village would sacrifice a heifer. They would wash their hands to rid themselves of of guilt, Pilate has been in this culture and society long enough to communicate with the Jewish people. I need to somehow tell you about the egregious circumstances that you're contemplating, and I want to distance myself from your willingness to have an innocent person suffer and for us to make sure that justice isn't served. And that's the culture and the society in which we live. How is it even possible that we could even, in the most wicked circumstances of our mind, think that it's a good idea to kill the innocent and to let the guilty go free? We follow from the criminal Barabbas to the concern of Pilate's wife to this attempted cleansing to avoid implication with the innocent. Now we can wash our hands, but we can't scrub our souls. We can try to run away from our guilt, but we can't really divorce ourselves from our responsibilities. We can pretend, we can pretend that nothing has gone wrong and that there's nothing wrong with my heart and that I've never done anything wrong, but our conscience knows different. It either accuses us or excuses us. But some people, they simply aren't worried about guilt. How could you do this? I don't care. Aren't you going to feel bad about this? No. Verse 25, and all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children I want you to think about what you just read. Because you can't reject Jesus and still claim to be a person who loves God. I love God. It's just Jesus that I'm uncertain about. Well, guess what? God sent Jesus. Look at the irony of their words. His blood be on us and our children. Unless his blood is on them and their children. 
There's no hope. There's no forgiveness. There's no reconciliation. I want you to think again about what you're reading. Matthew, Matthew isn't making an anti-Semitic statement. There are Jewish people who will say, I don't know everything. I've never read the New Testament, but I know that it says that Christians are supposed to kill Jews. Nothing could be further from the truth. Matthew is teaching that the horrible circumstances surrounding the future destruction of the temple in part can be traced to this moment, but this scripture passage does not I repeat it does not it does not it does not give any Christian the right or permission to hurt any Jew the scripture is given by God it says it's profitable for teaching doctrine report correction reproof instruction and righteousness that the man of God the woman of God will be equipped for service scripture reveals Jesus scripture exalts Jesus scriptures were never ever given ever for Gentiles to kill Jews for anyone to hurt Jews. And certainly it wasn't given so that the guilty could punish the innocent. You see, the truth is the Jewish people have yet to experience the time known as the time of Jacob's sorrow. It is future. It will happen. They have a concerted enemy in the person of Satan who is going to try to make sure that God's plans and purposes never unfold for them. Just like Satan has a plan to not allow the plans and purposes for, of God to unfold in your life. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is who he says he is. Pilate keeps his promise and releases Barabbas. And in verse 26, look what it says. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This scourging is to elicit sympathy. Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. This further delays Yet another prophecy. In the book of Isaiah it says by his stripes. We're healed. He is going to receive lashes. Mercifully. Matthew leaves out the gruesome details of this awful scourging. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, you, they actually do get it right in that movie. The Romans would practice this by stripping their victim from the waist up. And in this particular instance, they would, they would tie Jesus to a stone pillar that's in the pavement. And they would have literally beaten him. Dignitaries, if you had any kind of dignity whatsoever, you would be beaten with a stick. If you were a Roman citizen or if you were a well-to-do person, common people would be beaten with a whip that was laced with bone or glass or lead. They would tear the victim's skin, sometimes exposing the bone. And the number of lashes was determined by the severity of the crime. In the Jewish culture, it was 40 minus 1, hence 39, so that they would never get to the 40 mark for mercy's sake. Roman law had no such custom whatsoever. The Roman could hit you as many times as they thought was appropriate. All of these facts point to Jesus' innocence. Pilate's conscience pointed to the innocence of Jesus. Pilate's wife's dream pleads for his innocence. Pilate is given repeated opportunities to exercise justice, but he caves into the crowd. Roman law said innocent people should not be put to death. And we live in a culture and a society that is already determined that the most vulnerable and the most innocent among us must be put to death in the wicked, pernicious, disgusting practice of abortion. Even in our own country, the United States Senate could not agree that it's a bad idea to kill children in the womb. 
over and over and over again, Pilate attempts to release the prisoner. Max Lucado writes, quote, he, Pilate, tries to give the people Jesus. They want Barabbas. He sends Jesus to the whipping post, but they send him to Golgotha. He states that he finds nothing against the man. They accuse Pilate of violating the law. Pilate, afraid of who Jesus might be, pause for a moment with Mr. Lucado. Pilate, afraid of who Jesus might be, just Pause for a moment on that single sentence. Afraid of who he might be. Some of you have staked your whole life that if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the king from heaven, if he comes to die on your behalf, if he will ascend into heaven, if he's coming back for you, praise the Lord. But for the person who remains undecided, they're still wondering. They, all they can do is hope that Jesus isn't who he says he is. But in the, in the off chance that he is, if he is exactly who the New Testament says he is, then you need to reconsider your decision. Jesus might be way more than what the New Testament says. But I guarantee you, he can't be less. He can't be less than what the scriptures say about him. Max Lucado says, Pilate, afraid of who Jesus might be, tries one more time to release him. The Jews accuse him of betraying Caesar. So many voices. The voice of compromise. The voice of expedience. The voice of politics. The voice of conscience. And the soft, firm voice of Christ the only power you have over me is the power that's been given to you by God. His voice is distinct, unique. He doesn't cajole or plead. He just states the case. Pilate thought that he could avoid making the choice. He washes his hands of Jesus. He climbs on the fence and sits down. But in not making a choice, he makes a choice. Rather than asking for God's grace, he asks for a bowl Rather than invite Jesus to stay, he sends him away. Rather than hear Christ's voice, he hears the voice of the crowd. Legend has it that Pilate's wife became a believer. And legend has it that Pilate's eternal home is a mountain lake where he in daily surfaces, still plunging his hands into the water, seeking forgiveness, forever trying to wash away his guilt, not for the evil that he did, but for the kindness that he refused to do, unquote. Alas, it is only a legend. The Bible doesn't give those options. The Bible says that when you choose Jesus, you choose heaven. And when you fail to choose Jesus, you opt for an eternal consequence that eliminates heaven, that eliminates God, that eliminates Jesus. People who reject Jesus embrace existence apart from God. C.S. Lewis writes, quote, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any more patronizing nonsense about him being this great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us. He never intended to. No wonder the half-brother of Jesus will say in James chapter 4, verse 17, whoever knows what's right... Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it's sin. There might be some evil that God's calling you to prevent. What right thing, what right thing is God asking you to do? Pilate will ignore the evidence. He will ignore 
the law. He will ignore his conscience. He will ignore the advice of his wife. Barabbas is the people's choice. The question you really need to ask and answer is this. Given a choice, why would people choose the sinner over the Savior? Why would they choose the sinner when they can have the Savior? Remember what I said. Almost certainly Jesus might be way more than what the New Testament says. But he can never be less. And you will choose the Jesus of your imagination or the Jesus who's revealed himself in this scripture, in this word. What will it be? We're going to have communion in just a moment and I want you to take just a moment and reflect and consider about what God has done and the choices that you've made and the choices that you want to pursue. And I want you to think about just for a moment what it is that you would like to hear from the Lord, how it is that you would like him to speak to you, I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I, I do pray for these men and women. So many people come here. A loved one has been lost. A marriage is in jeopardy. There's financial difficulty. But there are other people who, for whatever reason, have postponed the choice. They've decided not to decide. And God's calling them. Jesus is calling them to make a choice. To choose who they're going to serve, who they're going to love, what they're going to believe, and who they're going to believe. And so, Lord, again, I pray that you would draw them. I pray that you would speak to them. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for communion, Lord. We know that Jesus, just even hours before this event, took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take it and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. Again, the Bible says he gave thanks and praise. He took the cup. He said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which would be shed for the remission of sin. There's a sacrifice that makes sin and guilt go away. There's a blood sacrifice that's going to be necessary for our conscience to be pure and clean. And so, Lord, again, as we partake of these elements, Lord, we are once again reminded. We're once again making the, the statement. We're affirming the decision that it's the Jesus. It's the Jesus who's the Son of God. It's the Jesus who's the sacrifice for sin. It's the Jesus who came back to life and ascended into heaven. That's the Jesus that we want in our heart and in our life and in our future. Again, Father, we commit these things to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead, Caroline.